and pray as we come to hear God's Word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege it is to assemble together freely to worship you. And Lord, we ask you to use this time by the power of your Spirit that as we sit under the preaching of your Word, that you'd work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would work what is pleasing in your sight, Lord, that you would encourage us in the hope that we have in Jesus, that you would strengthen us to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, to strengthen and equip us to to wage war against the flesh, Lord, with its desires that stand opposed to you. Lord, we pray for anyone who would be here today who does not know you, who's not yet put their faith in Jesus, that you would open up their hearts to receive your word, to put their faith in Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to preach your word here today and pray for your help to preach faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Should Christians boast? The title there of the sermon in your bulletin, a good question to ask. We've even sung about boasting this morning. Should Christians boast? Well, the simple answer is no. Boasting, it's rooted in selfish ambition, selfish desire. Boasting is coveting the attention, the admiration, the respect of others. Boasting is drawing attention to ourselves exalting our achievements, exalting what we've accomplished, exalting our education, exalting our awesome vacations that we post sometimes even on social media. So whether it's through a humble brag on social media or just outright boasting, Christians should be on the guard. After all, the apostle Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, when he was speaking on love and the beauty of love, he taught there and stated very plainly in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13, love does not envy or boast. So it's not loving to boast. Therefore, Christians should not boast. But the Apostle Paul gives one exception in Galatians chapter 6. One exception that we'll look at this morning in the conclusion of his letter to the Galatians. There is one kind of boasting that all Christians share in. Turn with me if you haven't already done so to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 11 through 18, finishing out this letter this morning. If you want to turn in the Pew Bible, if you want to use that Bible right in front of you, page 9. 75, page 975, the best way to stay engaged in the sermon is to open up a copy of the Bible. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, then use that Bible right in front of you uh, and then take it home with you. That's our gift to you, so keep it. Now go back and read Galatians 6 later today and connect with someone here, whether it's a member around you or any of our pastors at the door afterwards. We'd love to meet you and connect you with someone who could read God's Word with you. Let me read God's Word now. Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh." But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me 
and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Well, the main idea that I want us to see in the conclusion to Galatians, this main idea we see in the passage is this. We boast in the power of the cross and not in ourselves. It's the one kind of boasting that the Apostle Paul commends for Christians. We boast in the power of the cross and not in ourselves. Well, the end of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, it's different from how he ends most of his other New Testament letters. And we noted his intro was different from most of his introductions. You know, we see the same concern tone that was evident in the introduction here in the end of the letter as well. He's concerned for their spiritual well-being. He leaves them with one final warning about the false teachers, the, the Judaizers who came in very quickly after the Apostle Paul had planted those churches and had moved on. He gives them one final warning, and then he gives them one final word about the cross to point them to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, as we look at this passage this morning, I want to break this down, this outline down, into two kinds of motivation, a false motivation and a right motivation that we see here in this passage. First, in verses 11 through 13, the first kind of motivation, self-centered motivation. It's a wrong motivation seen in the false teachers preaching a false gospel, self-centered motivation. Now, the way that letters were typically written back in the first century when the Apostle Paul was writing to the Galatians is that he would kind of give the words being dictated to a scribe who would write those words down. And that's what we think is happening here in verse 11 when he says here, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Most scholars believe that it's at this moment that Paul takes the pen from the scribe and writes in his own handwriting. Now, why is he writing with large letters? We, we don't really know. I mean, it could be, could be he had bad eyesight. Could be it. Uh, it could be that his handwriting just stands out, maybe even intentionally, for them to know. Here's something that he's writing to them. The whole letter is from him. But whatever it is, it stands out here at the end. There's something critical he wants to close with, and he's drawing attention to it in verse 11. Now, in verses 12 through 13, he takes this final opportunity to condemn the false teachers there that were troubling the many churches in Galatia. And in Paul's final warning, he points out the selfish motive of these false teachers known as the Judaizers. Their ministry, simply put, was motivated by a fear of people. Not a fear of God, a fear of people, being concerned with what people think. And this fear of people, it showed itself in two ways. One, they sought to avoid persecution, persecution for preaching the cross. And number two, they desired to receive praise, two ways of pleasing people, avoiding their harsh judgment, but also kind of receiving accolades and, and praise and acceptance from people. And what's sinful about that is we're called as Christians to fear God, to be most concerned about His evaluation, His judgment, punishment that would come 
from his hand. We're called to look to him to find joy and to operate in reverence and obedience to his commands. Well, the Judaizers, they were not preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. As we've seen throughout this letter, they were preaching the law of Moses. Jesus plus the law of Moses. The gospel plus the Old Testament law. And they were demanding that the Galatian believers who were Gentiles become Jewish in order to truly be counted as God's people. So basically saying, okay, it's enough, you've been baptized, not enough rather, that you've been baptized and put your faith in Jesus. You also need to be circumcised and bring yourself under the Old Testament law of Moses if you truly want to be counted as God's people. At the end of verse 12, Paul notes their motivation. They do this only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They changed the message, added something to the gospel, and one part of their motivation was to avoid persecution. It was self-protection. They changed the message for their own well-being. They weren't preaching the cross of Christ. They were preaching circumcision. Now, Oakhurst Baptist Church, as we conclude this letter, it's important that we look at the original audience that a letter was written to. That's what we want to do in all of Scripture. And then we want to consider the present audience because we know that God's Word is for all people of all time. He's given His Word to us as a church this morning. And we need to consider our takeaways from this letter in Galatians. So I want to include some reminders throughout this final sermon, some final reminders and takeaways for us as a church. Here's the first one, an important reminder for us as a church. Preaching the cross will bring persecution. It's a timely one to remember even before Thanksgiving because many of us are going to go be with friends and family members. You might go back home to people that think that your faith in Christ is absurd. Maybe they don't want to hear it from you again, but you love them. And you feel burdened for them, rightly so, to share the good news of Jesus. It's important to have right expectations. Certainly, we should expect there will be some who receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, just look at this church. Full of testimonies of people who, by God's grace, maybe in your former life, you used to laugh at the gospel and think it was ridiculous. But at some point, the Spirit of God humbled you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Look at this church good reason to believe that when we throw seed of the gospel out there, the Holy Spirit will work and will use the good news that's preached. I remember a friend one time who uh, a number of us were circled around him. He was leading a ministry somewhere, and he saw a lot of people come to faith in Christ, and we're all gathered around trying to take notes, and we're like, what what are you doing over there? How are so many people coming to Christ? He said, it's pretty simple. If you don't preach the gospel, don't expect anyone to come to know Jesus. Just throw the seed out there we should expect people will believe in Jesus. But we also should expect something else we see in Scripture. There will also be another response, persecution. It's always been that way. The prophets, the apostles, Jesus himself, right? They accused him of blasphemy. It's an important reminder here that preaching the cross will bring persecution. If you talk enough about Jesus, if you talk to people enough about the need to repent of sin and trust in Jesus today. If you talk enough about Jesus being the only way to God, the only way to be forgiven of your sin, the only way to heaven, the only way to be made right with a holy God, talk enough about that and persecution will eventually come. You see, the cross is offensive broadly to the world. It's offensive because it makes much of God. 
It's offensive because it makes much of our sin. It says that our sin is such a big deal before God that we deserve judgment and God's wrath and not heaven. In our sin, we deserve hell. And that is offensive broadly to the world. That offense will bring persecution. It makes a big deal out of our sin. You see, people don't like to be told in their flesh that they're not good enough to be accepted by God on their own merits. People don't want to be told that they're guilty. That doesn't sound like good news. They don't want to be told that they need to repent. That doesn't sound like something appealing to the ears. On the flip side, people also don't like the idea that you can be forgiven by God's grace alone. In the flesh, people like to think, well, sure, God should forgive me. I've tried hard enough. But this person, they should never be forgiven. Are you telling me anyone can get off the hook? For anything they've done sinful against God, free grace, forgiveness from the cross of Christ, it's offensive to a world that wants to earn its salvation before God. You see, the message of the gospel of God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, it's offensive to the world. But make no mistake, it is beautiful to Christians. And it becomes beautiful to everyone whom God would save. Brothers and sisters, we should be honest about the gospel. We'll face persecution. For many of us in this country, it's not like the Apostle Paul faced, where we face getting beaten this week if we share the gospels. I hope that doesn't happen to you. It certainly, sadly, happens to our brothers and sisters all across the world, maybe even in some communities here in our country. But for most of us, largely it's going to be kind of some sort of a social ostracization that we, we fear, some rejection from others, uh, a pot shot taken in our faith. Uh, and in our pride, we often don't want to receive that. We do well to consider preaching the cross of Christ, fearing God, and not fearing people, and asking Him for His help to persevere. Well, the ministry of the false teachers was motivated by a fear of people, and this fear of people showed itself in another way. They sought to receive praise. Paul points out in verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Sounds like a really weird thing to boast about, like how many people they convinced to get circumcised. I've never talked about this this much in my life than going through Galatians, right? So even to our modern ears, that may sound kind of odd, but let's consider what it is that they were doing. They were out after kind of conversion scorecards, which we need to be careful about in our Southern Baptist circles. They were out after big numbers and parading numbers. Well, well, why? They wanted the praise of people. And the particular people they wanted the praise of, it seems like, were the Jewish leaders of that time. It would have been offensive to the Jewish leaders of that time that there's these Jews there in Galatia, and now they're sharing meals and fellowship with unclean Gentiles. Now, that wasn't accepted. It wasn't allowed in society. So they would face persecution if they were to do that. Persecution, they would, be, uh, they would come to be known as kind of being sellouts to their culture and their ancestry and their faith. And still it is today. So they could just kind of soften things, make an accommodation, make an adjustment here. If they could go back to the Jewish leaders and say, well, guess what? We've convinced these Gentiles to bring themselves under the Old Testament law. Look at them. Look, we've had 50 people get circumcised this week. Well, they'd receive the praise and the acceptance and the respect there of society if they could successfully lead these Gentile Christians to be under the law of Moses. They could gain favor from the Jewish leaders. 
Well, Oakers, here's another reminder for us. If you preach the cross of Jesus plus something else, you forfeit the cross. If you preach the cross of Jesus plus something else, you forfeit the cross. Making a little bit of an accommodation to the message, adding something on to gain the acceptance of people around us, presenting the cross in such a way where you might seem more open-minded, tolerant to a watching world, add something to the cross, or in many cases, subtract something like repentance, and you lose the cross of Christ. You forfeit it. Brothers and sisters, we must not seek to make accommodations to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a cultural message. It's not a Western message. It's not a Southern Baptist message. It's not an evangelical message. It's a biblical message. It's good news preserved. And people of all cultures and generations and time periods have believed this same message. Indeed, on every inhabitable continent this morning, there are assemblies in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ believing and preaching and rejoicing in this same good news. But there often can come, when a society starts to turn against the gospel, uh, a willingness amongst Christians to start to make accommodations. Sometimes that's just taking things off the sin list. Christians, if you could just change your view of marriage. And just accommodate it. Stop holding to this old-fashioned view of marriage that's only one man and one woman together forever. If you just change that, you'll be okay with us as a site, which isn't true anyways, because there's always something else that needs to be changed. We don't have authority to edit the gospel. It doesn't need to be edited. It's an old message, an ancient message that brings hope and joy and peace. We must not expand the gospel. Rather, we need to build a fence around it. Make sure we're not broadening the message of the cross. Also, think about it in the life of the church. Uh, There's a place for us to talk about good works. We need to be zealous for good works. We need to talk about spiritual growth. We have a class on spiritual disciplines that just met downstairs a few more weeks to go in that class. Those are good things to talk about. At the same time, we need to understand those things aren't the gospel. There are implications of the gospel It's obedience that's in line with the truth of the gospel, but we need to make sure that we never move on from the gospel as a church, that we don't view, as we've said throughout this series, the gospel as the ABCs, kind of the entryway into the Christian life, and then we just kind of leave it behind like you leave elementary school behind, that we never graduate, rather, from this gospel. The gospel is for all of life. We must never move on from the gospel. You see, you can either trust in Jesus And it is His finished work on the cross, or you can trust in your own works. It is not possible to be trusting in both. To try to add some human work or wisdom to the gospel shows that you think Jesus is not sufficient. If you try to add Jesus and then His finished work, you're trying to add to that with your own work, you actually end up rejecting and forfeiting the cross of Jesus Christ and losing the gospel all together. You see, the good news of the gospel points to what God alone has done in Jesus Christ. What He's already done, the greatest work that needs to be done, it's already been finished. We look back every Sunday and remember the greatest work that has ever been done. Jesus paid it all. It wouldn't be good news this morning if we just sang Jesus paid a part. Jesus paid some of it, Think about the burden that would be on you. Now leave here and go pay the rest. He did 50%. 
Go take care of the other half on your own. Rather, we delight and rejoice in the good news of Jesus. He paid it all. His finished work on the cross, His resurrection from the dead is sufficient to pay for the penalty of your sin against a holy God if indeed you would trust in Him. Nothing needs to be added to the cross of Jesus Christ. His work was finished, fully sufficient. Nothing needs to be changed. And therefore, the necessary response is to believe in Jesus you've come this morning, you've not yet done that. This is a great morning to do it, to put your faith in Jesus. That's something you can do today. Talk to your parents that you came with this morning. Talk to someone around you. Talk to any of our pastors at the door afterwards. You can put your faith in Jesus today. And for those who already have, we can rest and rejoice in Jesus. Let's look at a second kind of motivation in verses 14 through 18. A second kind of motivation, cross-centered motivation. Verses 14 through 18, cross-centered motivation, a proper motivation. What comes to your mind when you see a cross? You've already seen a few this morning. We see crosses all over the place in Charlotte. Right? You saw one on our church sign on the logo drive-in this morning. It's there on the logo, printed on the front of your bulletin. Up on the steeple of our church, there's a cross. Uh, Some of you may have a a cross as a piece of jewelry right now that you're wearing around your neck. To our modern eyes, it's it's a religious symbol. It's a religious symbol of Christianity. It doesn't stand out too much to us in Charlotte. We're kind of used to it, the cross. But consider what the image of the cross meant to the average person living in the first century. The average person living in the region of Galatia, where this letter was addressed, The cross was an instrument of Roman execution. Like if you saw a cross and you were going down the road in the first century, you would stop like, what's going on here? Are the Romans here ready to execute and publicly kill people? The cross was an emblem of shame. The cross was an emblem of suffering, a place for public criminals to publicly be humiliated. The cross is a form of execution that would not be permitted in the United States of America. So horrific, so so devastating, cruel, and unusual punishment, most certainly. In this respect, the cross is a horrifying image. Yet, for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the story of our crucified Savior gives us reason to rejoice in an image that the world finds horrifying. In verse 14, we read Paul rejoicing. And one of the most beautiful passages, certainly in Galatians, but maybe in all the New Testament, I love this verse, Galatians 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. This word boast, it means to make much of, to rejoice in, to glory in. The false teachers in Galatia, they boasted and made much of their own accomplishments, but Paul boasted in what Christ accomplished on the cross. Paul says, but far be it from me to boast. So stay far away from boasting. But here is that one exception. 
except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one ground for boasting. Not in yourself, not in your accomplishments, not in what you've done, not in the degrees you've earned, not the humble brags or the vacation posts on social media. There's only one ground for boasting, not in ourselves, but in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, consider the person there in the first century to boast in the cross would have sounded crazy. What are you boasting in? You're boasting in an instrument of death. In Jesus being crucified, you're boasting in his execution. You're boasting in his public treatment as a public criminal. You're boasting in him being shamed. To the world, that would have sounded like an embarrassing moment. Something to hide, not something to exalt. You boast in his execution. After all, they would think your guy was killed by the Romans. And you're boasting so much about that? To the common person, that seemed like a loss. Who boasts about losing? It would have seemed like an embarrassment. Well, brothers and sisters, we boast in the cross every Sunday morning because we are confident Jesus did not lose at the cross. Lots of people got crucified on Roman crosses. Only one got up from the dead. Only one remained undefeated. See, there's nothing that stood out about dying on a Roman cross. Lots of people suffered that emblem of shame and suffering, but there was only one. There's never been a death like his. It was a death that was clearly seen as a payment for sin. Now, you can see it there in his death. The glory of the cross was clearly seen. We see the centurion repenting. Surely this was the Son of God. We see lots of things happening there in response, even in the physical world of the crucifixion of Jesus. But in case you missed it, three days later, he got up from the dead. No one else ever got up from the dead to never die again. There was never a death like his, a death that's a payment for sin, his victory at the cross clearly revealed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, therefore, those who, by God's grace, have put their faith in Jesus, we boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that emblem of suffering and shame, for it was at the cross that God demonstrated His love towards sinners like us. It was at the cross that we see God sending His Son, Jesus, His only Son, to die and to take the penalty for our sins. We glory in the cross, for it's on that cross that Jesus fully embraced the wrath and judgment of God in our place. There was never a death like His, meaning His death was substitutionary, an atoning death, taking the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin against a holy God. We glory in the cross because it was there on that cross every sin on Him was laid. For those who put their faith in Jesus, we know every sin past, every sin present, and every future sin where we shamefully sin against our God and King from now until glory, it's already been paid for. It was laid on Jesus Christ. We rejoice because at the cross there was victory. See, Christians boast not in ourselves, but in the cross of Jesus, for our assurance is not found in us. It's found in Christ alone. 
In the moment that Christ breathed his last breath and died, he physically died on that cross, that symbol of shame became a symbol of salvation, forgiveness of sins, righteousness from God. We rejoice that through the cross and faith in Jesus, that work on the cross has been applied to our lives individually as Christians, as believers, that we don't stand on our own merits and our own good efforts or best intentions. Rather, we stand on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. That's why we rejoice. The righteousness of God counted as ours through Jesus Christ. Through the cross, full access to God. Again, when Jesus died, what happened to the curtain there in the temple? It was torn, but not just in any other old way, from top to bottom. They're revealing access to God, fully granted to those who would put their faith in Jesus. We rejoice in the cross because it's only through the cross of Jesus Christ that we have been set free to live and to love as we ought in a way that honors God. We boast in the cross, for it is only through the death and resurrection of Christ that we're accepted by a holy God. In other words, He is all that we have and He's all that we need. You see, what you boast about reveals where your confidence is. Boast in your achievements. It reveals your security, where you're trying to find it at least, is in what you've done, what you've accomplished. And when you feel insecure, you start to make sure people know about those things. Here's what I've done. Here's where I've been. Here's the degrees that I earned. Here's the good things that I've done. It's real easy to impress men in their 40s. Just talk about your career. Talk about your vacation home. The average guy will get pretty impressed with that. It's easy to kind of, kind of boast in yourself in that way. It reveals where your confidence is. Well, consider your, your confidence is either in Jesus or it's in something else. And therefore, you cannot boast in Jesus plus something else. You can either boast of your work or Christ's finished work. You can either boast in your righteousness or in the righteousness of Christ. You can either boast in your own obedience or in the perfect obedience of Jesus. You can either boast in what you have done or you can boast in what Christ alone has done. That's the boast of a Christian. Christians boast in Jesus. For our confidence is not found in what we have done, but in what Christ alone has done for us on the cross. We deserve eternal judgment from God, hell, wrath, condemnation. But we rejoice that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been set free by the blood of Christ. We've received forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus. You see, Christian, the proper response to all of that, to that word of the cross, is to boast is to rejoice in what Christ alone has done for you. Boasting in the cross means that all glory goes to Jesus because He alone is worthy. Think about the the good news of the gospel. Again, it declares Jesus paid it all. We were boasting and rejoicing and making much of Jesus when we sang, For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. We were boasting as we sang, and when before the throne, I stand in him complete. 
Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. You can only sing that and mean it if you've truly trusted in Jesus. OBC, here's another reminder. All of life is worship, and therefore all of life is for boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about it. All of life is worship, and therefore all of life is found boasting in the cross and making much of Christ. So that I just mentioned we do that together in our life as a church every Sunday morning. Consider this morning how we sought to make much of Christ. That's the aim of this gathering and this Christian assembly. The aim of it is to make much of Jesus and not ourselves. That's why we regularly pray prayers of confession and praise and thanksgiving. It's why we regularly come and lift up requests in the name of Jesus. It's why we sing songs. Singing songs is not a southern thing. It's not a western thing. Uh, Thankfully, it's not just for people who sing really well because then a lot of us would be excluded from singing. Rather, we're all commanded to sing and all expected to sing. It's part of our worship. It's part of our ministry to one another. And what we're singing about is Jesus Christ, what he's done for us. And again, consider how weird it must sound. First off, there's not a lot of places outside of some public concerts where people, they engage in public singing. This is one of the few places in modern day where people get together regularly and publicly sing. But consider how weird it must seem to the rest of the world what we sing about every Sunday. The cross of Jesus Christ, blood, nails going through his hands, the wrath of God, sin. We sing about sin every week. We sing about forgiveness found only in Jesus. And of course, we sing about his resurrection from the dead. That sounds really strange to people. A guy got up from the dead. In fact, I heard a video this week, a political commentary, and it had to do with a reporter, one of a reporter that was talking about the new speaker of the house who happens to be a Southern Baptist. He's an evangelical Christian. And the reporter said, wait a minute, this guy's an evangelical. Uh, so he thinks that Jesus rose from the dead. So he thinks that a guy was dead and he got up. And listening to that was just a reminder to me, yeah, the world thinks we're crazy for this. They're okay if we do good things and we feed people at Thanksgiving and try to be nice to our neighbors. But start talking about a dead guy who got up from the dead and then start telling everyone they need to repent and believe in him. It's going to seem bizarre. Persecution will certainly come. We're called, though, part of boasting in the cross, we're called to evangelize. I can't think of a more immediate practical application in our lives individually than to evangelize. And even though we may feel like our reputation's on the line, and I got to talk with some of our our ladies recently who are going through a a book, Jai Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, wonderful book, would commend it to you. It's downstairs for sale. And and we just kind of were dealing with the question, like, what do you do with fear? And I wanted them to know I've yet to meet the person who has no fear when evangelizing. I've just yet to meet them. I've heard a play. This fear is kind of like a blinking red light that tells you keep going. Like There's fear. There's some danger here. But your reputation is not primarily what's on the line. We're talking about the reputation of Jesus. And we want others to know who he is, how great he is, how wonderful he is. I can't think of a better immediate practical application than evangelizing and sharing the good news with those around us. Think about as we care for one another, as we try to disciple one another, as we try to care for others, as others deal with, with burdens. E- even got the news this morning, I mentioned in my prayer, Jason Charette saying that 
Uh, sadly, Lauren's mom went to be with the Lord early this morning. Well, how do we care for others? Do we just like pat them on the back and just hope? Oh, it's okay to pat people on the back. But the way we care for each other is we point each other to Jesus. We make much of the cross. We make much of the cross and, and trials and hardship. How do you know you're boasting in Jesus? Where do you turn in trials? Where do you turn in, in hardships? Think about how our discipling and our caring for others and seeking to bear others' burdens. We want to point people to Jesus, the chief burden bearer. That's what cross-centered living looks like. Well, Christian, I wonder how you might seek to make much of Jesus this week. What would that look like in your life? Well, Paul continues on. We rejoice in the cross of Christ because all who have repented of their sin against God and believed in Jesus have been spiritually transformed. At the end of verse 14, we read of the effect the cross of Christ has on those who have put their faith in Jesus. The verse finishes, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, this reference to the world isn't so much talking about trees and the ocean and land here. It's got a spiritual reference, a spiritual reality. So the, the world, in this sense, is the present evil age that we live in. The world system, a system of values and beliefs that is opposed to God and to His Word. So not only do we have the flesh and the devil working against us to honor God, we also have the world, world system, which is why we need to be for each other you have a lot stacked up against you. And we need to be for each other's spiritual good and growth. You see, to be crucified to the world means that the entire world system no longer rules over you. Jesus does. The world system no longer has power over you. It no longer has dominion over you. It's no longer dominating you. Jesus rules over you. That's the good news of the cross. Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you're dead to the power of the world and the power of the world is dead to you. It's that crucifixion language that we saw Paul use back in chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Through faith in Jesus, the world and its values that are opposed to God have been crucified, put to death. You've been set free, in other words. No longer does the world have power over you where you're unable to obey and honor God and please Him and keep His word. Indeed, all who've set, been set free by the cross of Jesus Christ, the proper response to that is to rejoice, to boast. Christ will one day make all things new, including this present world. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 21. That's sure to happen one day, hopefully soon. But you know what He makes new first? People. Christians, you and I, if indeed you've put your faith in Jesus. That's what we see in verse 15. Paul speaks of the transformation that the cross of Christ supplies to Christians in bringing new life. Through the cross, you're dead to sin, which is really good news, but it gets even better. Not only are we dead to sin, but we're alive in Christ. Look at verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision but a new creation. When it comes to salvation, we've seen this before in Galatians, circumcision doesn't matter. It plays no role in salvation. Uncircumcision doesn't matter either. Neither one beneath the cross are a badge of honor. They don't matter for salvation. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile, 
doesn't matter. What matters, Paul says, is a new creation, meaning whether or not someone has been made new in Christ. In context, Paul's reminding them what matters most is not an external marking on your body like circumcision. What matters is the internal marking on your heart by the Holy Spirit. That is what physical circumcision always looked forward to. It always looked forward to the spiritual circumcision of the heart that would come through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ, the one sent to crush the head of the serpent. It's what baptism looks back on, that you've already been saved, made new in Christ. Through the cross of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead, the new creation has been inaugurated. New creation has broken into this present world. What He makes new first are those who put their faith in Jesus. God's people, those who've trusted in Jesus, are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. Christian, what that means is at the moment of conversion, the power of the Holy Spirit transformed you at that moment. Taken from dead in your sins to alive in Christ. A new creation, meaning a whole new person. He transforms you from the inside out to give you new desires. Circumcision was trying, at least the Judaizers were trying to use it to change people from the outside in. The Holy Spirit of God makes new creations, changing us from the inside out. What does that look like? Well, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we have new desires. We love what we see in God's Word. We're passionate about what we see in God's Word, the name of Jesus. We care about obedience and holiness. We have new loves and we have new hates. We hate. We start increasingly to hate doing the things and saying the things and thinking the things that dishonor God. You used to love sin, Christian. Now you grieve it. You still struggle with it. You're still harassed by temptation, but you grieve it. As we grow spiritually, we increasingly grieve our sin against God. You used to love drunkenness. Now you hate it. You used to just, as a way of life, boast about yourself. Now you're becoming more sensitive to it, seeing how that dishonors God. You see God's Word, and you agree with Him in His Word, and repent, and believe, and keep repenting, and keep believing. Everyone who's been made a new creation receives the blessing of verse 16. And it's for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That word rule, it means standard. So the rule or standard for who is counted as the people of God is not the outer work of circumcision. There's a new rule. The inner work of the Spirit in which you've been made a new creation in Christ That is the standard for being counted amongst the people of God. Faith in Christ, inner work of the Spirit, not the outer work of circumcision, which is why Paul refers to the blessing of peace and mercy being upon the Israel of God. This is the only time in the New Testament we see this reference, the Israel of God. And and there's a lot of debate among scholars. Again, I get a week to look at this. I do. These guys like wrestle with us for like 10 years and still come out unsure. I I think, though, the best way to take it is just put it in context with the whole letter. The the point Paul's been making is that the true Israel, the true people of God, are those who've repented and put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
That's who has been made new creations through faith alone and Christ alone. They are counted as the Israel of God or the people of God, the church. Those who have been made new in Christ, they found shalom or peace with God, found mercy and kindness, all of our sins being forgiven in Jesus Christ. I think he's saying to the church, you are the Israel of God. You're his people through faith in Christ. And the final blow of the hammer there in verse 17, Paul's directly confronting circumcision. Look at verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. False teachers taught you needed to mark your body and be circumcised to be made right with God. Paul says to the false teachers, don't trouble me enough already. You want to talk about outward markings on the body. It's almost like he's lifting his shirt. And he's pointing to physical markings on his body from persecution. He's saying, you want to talk about marks and evidence of knowing God? Look at the marks of my suffering. His life was marked by a willingness to suffer for Christ. The physical marks that he bore, he suffered beatings and imprisonment, stoned and left for dead. Why? Because he was boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. The false teachers promoted their mark of circumcision in order to avoid the mark of persecution. Their lack of marks revealed their selfish motivation and therefore their false message. And on the other hand, the presence of the marks of Jesus and suffering on Paul's body authenticated his ministry and his message. Persecutions, beatings, imprisonment, would not stop him from boasting in the cross. Indeed, through his persecution, the cross of Christ was magnified and exalted. You see, every Christian boasts in the cross of Christ. As a result, every Christian will face persecution for the cross of Christ. The Christian life is not easy. So how do you persevere? How do you continue? How do you continue boasting in the cross? How do you continue waging war against the flesh day after day? Well, the same way that you started, by the grace of Christ with you. Paul began this letter with grace. He ends with grace in verse 18. The letter closes with a a final benediction that serves as a word of encouragement. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Typical introduction to Paul's letters in the New Testament, grace to you. Typical conclusion to his letters in the New Testament, grace with you. It's a nice little grace sandwich to be fed by the Word of God. With his last words, Paul speaks directly to their spirit, to the inner person. Grace be with you, meaning not just alongside you. Grace be with you, meaning inside of you spiritually strengthening you to keep you until the end. A final reminder for us, Oakhurst, the grace of Christ is with you. You will be sustained the same way that you started. In this race that we have in front of us, praise the Lord, we do not run alone. I love having you all alongside me but I need more than you. 
You need more than me. What a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus lives inside. He dwells inside every believer. From the moment of conversion, He came to dwell inside of us, meaning that in this race we have in front of us, we do not run alone. Our confidence is found in Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with us, and therefore His grace in Christ, it is for us. It is only by the grace of Christ that we're accepted by God, and it's only by the grace of Christ that we are kept for God until the end. This grace that forgives, this grace that empowers and strengthens, this grace that transforms and sustains, that very grace found in Christ is with us. We have a precious promise from Jesus in Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us. That's what Paul is reminded. His grace, the grace of Christ, is more than enough. His grace will lead us to walk by the Spirit. His grace will guard us to battle against the flesh. His grace will guard us against the desires of the flesh that so regularly tempt us and harass us and trouble us in our lives. His grace will keep on producing spiritual fruit, evidence in your life of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. Our confidence as Christians is that the grace of Christ is with us. Grace for every trial. Grace for every failure. Grace for every season. His grace is sufficient. His grace is more than enough for you. That's what sufficient means. Not just like, oh, it's okay, it's adequate. His grace is more than enough for you. His grace is always with you. Christian, this blessing is yours in Christ. Live out of that blessing today. May we never be tempted to get over the gospel. May we keep relying on God's sustaining grace in Christ. O cursed Baptist church, keep looking to the cross of Christ. Keep trusting. Keep rejoicing. Keep resting keep boasting. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these weekly reminders that we share in together as a church of your grace, that your grace is sufficient in Christ. These regular reminders, we have your love and your care for us in Christ, the promises that you've given us in Christ. And so we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us spiritually. Lord, I pray you'd turn our eyes and our minds and hearts to you, that we would trust you more. Lord, we pray for rest and for comfort, that you would draw near to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that as we close out this letter, that the truth that we've heard, that you would take it and impress it upon our hearts we pray that we would remember the truth of your word, that we would live in light of it, that you would bring the fruit of wisdom in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray you'd bring rest and rejoicing more and more in our minds and hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.